Welcome to Viewpoints listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time, uh, Michael Schiavelli. Now, Michael grew up in Melbourne and after interning at Triple M, he began working as a sports journalist and uh, since then he's written for more than 50 publications worldwide, was the long-serving editor of Blitz magazine and the editor of International Kickboxer magazine until 2009. A feature writer for Inside Sports magazine and was the youngest ever inductee to the Best Australian Sports Writing Awards. He's commentated for AXS TV, K1, Dream Maximum Fighting Championships, King of the Cage and the Contender Agent. Asia, and he currently travels the world working as a TV commentator and presenter for Singapore-based MMA Promotion 1 Championship, and if that's not enough, has just released via Bad Apple Press, Goodnight Irene, How a Bullied Fat Kid from Melbourne Became a Global Broadcasting Star. Welcome to Viewpoints, Michael Schiavello. Henry, thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. Thanks for having me on your show. It's an absolute pleasure. And I can, I can assure our listeners that that introduction, Michael, is authentic. It is authentic. Fact-checked, double-checked in the books. It is authentic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Now, I'll start with, Will, why did you write this book? You know, originally, Henry, here's, the, here's the, the weird story on this one. I began writing a memoir when I was about 25 years old. I'd already done so much in the media world at 25. I, I thought to myself, I'm going to start putting some of these stories down about how I got to where I was at the time and some of these celebrities I'd interviewed. And I, I jotted them down and did about 30,000 words and sort of forgot about it. And as time went on over the years, every time I would especially interview a famous person for my TV show in the USA or on radio, um, I'd tell friends and family members and, and people I'd come into contact with the story about these celebrities, people like Jean-Claude Van Damme or Steven Seagal or Kathy Freeman, Wazim Akram, Diego Maradona, George Foreman, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, Hulk Hogan. And people would always say to me, put these down into a book so you know we can, we can read more about them because... These stories are amazing to hear. So last year, I decided to, to start putting them down, and I actually found that old manuscript that I'd written back in you know, when I was 25 years old. So that was a big help to, to rejog, rejig my memory. And so I started putting it together, but uh, it started off as a memoir, but then it became something much more than that. As I got writing, and I had to trigger a lot of my early memories from primary school, from high school, from my formative years, uh, you know, it started to trigger memories of how I was bullied when I was young because I was overweight. I was, I was picked on as, as the fat kid at school, uh, triggered memories of relationships with people, with friends, with family, um, with, with, with the, the, the high school and the, the primary school bullies. And so what started as a memoir turned into almost a social message and it became very important for me to follow through and write the book because I knew that other than telling people about the celebrities and the travel and you know, being a global sports commentator, I wanted to let people know what it was like to be bullied and overcome that adversity and overcome the naysayers who said I'd never amount to anything in the, in the media world and do what I've done and win awards and travel the world. And you know, now I'm broadcast to, to um, Nielsen-rated 80 million-plus people on 150 countries worldwide just to show everyone out there, particularly young people who may be teased because of the way they look, the way they act, their appearance, their mannerisms, 
who may be facing a life with adversity and think, well, I will never amount to anything more than what I look like physically. I want them to know that you can through hard work and dedication and desire and drive and you know, commitment to your dream that you can achieve it. So yeah, to summarize your question very simply, it started off as a, a storytelling adventure and became a real social message that I hope inspires a, a lot of people, especially young people. Mm, absolutely. There's a couple of things I want to take up with you there. But one of the things, one of the messages you make uh, almost in every interview you talk about and reflect about those sorts of issues, you talk about, uh, and your profession as well, Michael, that everything ought to be uh, a lesson within itself and a path of improvement. Having written the book and talked about something which must have been painful, though, some of those memories. How are you a better person for having written the book? I think, uh, Henry, that in life, when you have a problem, and I, you know, I talk in the book about the bullies, I talk about uh, bouts of anxiety, that even today I, I still experience, but not as much as I used to because I've learned to, to handle them. And one of the ways to handle these things is to identify them. I don't think that any problem in life uh, whether it be a problem like anxiety or depression or, or overcoming bullies or a problem like not being able to perform to your optimum at school or at work or in a family life, in social life, whatever your problem may be. I think if you cannot admit to that problem, if you cannot pinpoint the source or sources of that problem, but usually they always stem from one, maybe two sources. If you can't identify those, let's call them triggers, then there's no way you can remedy them. And I think that when I wrote the book, I was able to identify a lot of those triggers early on in my life that I, I, I put out of my mind and that were maybe in, in my subconscious were still affecting me. And the fact that I made them resurface by writing about them, by thinking about them and realizing the forks in the road that steered my life in a particular direction, in a positive direction, when it could have gone very negatively um, really helped to improve my mindset, improve my emotion, improve the way I feel about myself. I feel better now about myself than I ever have before. Um, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, I'm, I'm in such a great place. And writing the book, it was almost a, a therapeutic process, having to dig down into these memories, bring them back to the surface, address them and say, yeah, that happened. And here's how I overcame what happened, what I did about it. Instead of being a victim and, 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 and just remaining a victim, I made sure that I transcended that and, and conquered it. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of people tend to play the victim out because they, I don't want to say enjoy, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but we'll, we'll say the word enjoy. They enjoy the, the, the empathy, the sympathy they receive off other people. And so they, they have that victim mentality for a long time, but it's not a positive mentality. It's not a healthy way to, to, to invest in your emotions because that sort of victim mentality will, will just eat away at you and you know, give you physical ailments later in life, not to mention the mental and emotional impact. So to identify those triggers and to no longer have that victim mentality and to climb above it, I think is very important and writing the book helped me to do that. Mm. And you talk in other interviews and elsewhere too on that very topic, uh, Michael, how um, you met a, one of your, your schoolboy colleagues much many years later and he uh, described you in your words, uh, you're a pretty happy, level-headed 
dude. And you, you put a lot of reflection into that uh, in explaining it. And uh, it, it, uh, you might like to elaborate on your thoughts about that comment you met from a, a, a school friend uh, after many years. It, it was an interesting comment that he made because the, the book came out and it was released. And, of course, the tagline of the book, as you mentioned before, is how a bullied fat kid became a global broadcasting mm. star. And uh, this guy went to high school. Um, we'll call him John. That's not his real name, but we'll call him John. Yes. And John you know, contacted me and said, oh, hey, I see your book's out. Congratulations. But I never remember you being um, the bullied kid. I always remembered you as you know, being a pretty happy-go-lucky kid. And John was part of the popular clique at school. And um, I don't know what it's like these days. I assume it's still the same in high schools everywhere. But back then, I'm talking 1991, 92, 90, high school was very cliquey. You had your sportos, your jocks, you had your, your, your nerds, you know, you had your music geeks. The, 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 the cliques you see in movies like, you know, teen movies like American Pie were very evident, very prevalent back then in the, in the early 90s. And you know, I, was, I was never a part of that accepted jock clique, that sporto clique, that popular kid clique that existed back then, but this guy was. And the thing was that I, I never shared with anyone back then how much I had been bullied and how much adversity I was experiencing. Henry, when my mum read the book, when I gave her a copy mm. of the book when it came out a few weeks ago, she read it and she read the first two chapters and turned around to me and said, I'm so sorry. I go, what are you sorry for, mum? She goes, I never realised you went through all this. I just didn't tell anyone. So I understand what John was saying, saying I always remember you as a happy-go-lucky kid who wasn't picked on. Well, it's only because I'd never let you see that. You know, I never let that part of me come through. I put that part of me aside and I fought against it. I didn't play myself into a victim mentality and complain and cry and get upset to anyone who would listen that I was being bullied and teased. I said to myself, no, I'm stronger than this. I can overcome this. And the way that I overcome it was through my, my two invisible parts of myself that gave me a superpower, writing and talking through writing in various newspapers and, and, and reporting and talking on, on, on radio, later on television, of course. And so that was, it was, it was interesting to, to, to hear from him, knowing what clique he was back then and that, he will no doubt read the book now because I know he got a copy of the book and go, wow, I, I never knew that, that Michael went through that. Just like my mum said, you know, she never knew that I went through that. My sisters never knew that I went through that. I just, I didn't tell anyone. I just wanted to prove all the naysayers and all the bullies wrong. Mm, and, you've, and you've certainly, certainly done that, Michael. We'll take a short break. Can you hold the line? Indeed. Welcome to Viewpoints listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time, uh, Michael Schiavelli. Now, Michael grew up in Melbourne and after interning at Triple M, he began working as a sports journalist and uh, since then he's written for more than 50 publications worldwide, was the long-serving editor of Blitz magazine and the editor of International Kickboxer magazine until 2009, a feature writer for Inside Sports magazine and was the youngest ever inductee to the Best Australian Sports Writing Awards. He's commentated for AXS TV, K1, Dream Maximum Fighting Championships, King of the Cage and The Contender Agent. 
Asia, and he currently travels the world working as a TV commentator and presenter for Singapore-based MMA Promotion 1 Championship, and if that's not enough, has just released via Bad Apple Press, Goodnight Irene, How a Bullied Fat Kid from Melbourne Became a Global Broadcasting Star. Welcome to Viewpoints, Michael Schiavello. Henry, thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. Thanks for having me on your show. It's an absolute pleasure. And I can I can assure our listeners that that introduction, Michael, is authentic. It is authentic. Fact-checked, double-checked in the books. It is authentic. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Now, I'll start with, Will, why did you write this book? You know, originally, Henry, here's, the, here's the, the weird story on this one. I began writing a memoir when I was about 25 years old. I'd already done so much in the media world at 25. I, I thought to myself, I'm going to start putting some of these stories down about how I got to where I was at the time and some of these celebrities I'd interviewed. And I, I jotted them down and did about 30,000 words and sort of forgot about it. And as time went on over the years, every time I would especially interview a famous person for my TV show in the USA or on radio, um, I'd tell friends and family members and and people I'd come into contact with the story about these celebrities, people like Jean-Claude Van Damme or Steven Seagal or Kathy Freeman, Wazim Akram, Diego Maradona, George Foreman, Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, Hulk Hogan. And people would always say to me, put these down into a book so we we can read more about them because... These stories are amazing to hear. So last year, I decided to, to start putting them down, and I actually found that old manuscript that I'd written back in you know, when I was 25 years old. So that was a big help to, to re-jog, rejig my memory. And so I started putting it together, but uh, it started off as a memoir, but then it became something much more than that. As I got writing, and I had to trigger a lot of my early memories from primary school, from high school, from my formative years, uh, you know, it started to trigger memories of how I was bullied when I was young because I was overweight. I was, I was picked on as, as the fat kid at school, uh, triggered memories of relationships with people, with friends, with family, um, with, with, with the, the, the high school and the, the primary school bullies. And so what started as a memoir turned into almost a social message and it became very important for me to follow through and write the book because I knew that other than telling people about the celebrities and the travel and you know, being a global sports commentator, I wanted to let people know what it was like to be bullied and overcome that adversity and overcome the naysayers who said I'd never amount to anything in the, in the media world and do what I've done and win awards and travel the world. And you know, now I'm broadcast to, to um, Nielsen-rated 80 million-plus people on 150 countries worldwide just to show everyone out there, particularly young people who may be teased because of the way they look, the way they act, their appearance, their mannerisms, who may be facing a life with adversity and think, well, I will never amount to anything more than what I look like physically. I want them to know that you can through hard work and dedication and desire and drive and you know, commitment to your dream that you can achieve it. So, yeah, to summarise your question very simply, it started off as a, a storytelling adventure and became a real social message that I hope inspires a, a lot of people, especially young people. Mm, absolutely. There's a couple of things I want to take up with you there. But one of the things, one of the messages you make uh, almost in every interview you talk about and reflect about those sorts of issues, you talk about, uh, and your profession as well, Michael, that everything ought to be 
uh, a lesson within itself and a path of improvement. Having written the book and talked about something which must have been painful, though some of those memories, how are you a better person for having written the book? I think, uh, Henry, that in life, when you have a problem, and I, you know, I talk in the book about the bullies, I talk about uh, bouts of anxiety that even today I, I still experience, but not as much as I used to because I've learned to, to handle them. And one of the ways to handle these things is to identify them. I don't think that any problem in life, uh, whether it be a problem like anxiety or depression or, or overcoming bullies or a problem like not being able to perform to your optimum at school or at work or in a family life, in social life, whatever your problem may be, I think if you cannot admit to that problem, if you cannot pinpoint the source or sources of that problem, but usually they always stem from one, maybe two sources. If you can't identify those, let's call them triggers, then there's no way you can remedy them. And I think that when I wrote the book, I was able to identify a lot of those triggers early on in my life that I, I, I put out of my mind and that were maybe in, in my subconscious were still affecting me. And the fact that I made them resurface by writing about them, by thinking about them and realizing the forks in the road that steered my life in a particular direction, in a positive direction, when it could have gone very negatively, um, really helped to improve my mindset, improve my emotion, improve the way I feel about myself. I feel better now about myself than I ever have before. Um, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, I'm, I'm in such a great place. And writing the book, it was almost a, a therapeutic process, having to dig down into these memories, bring them back to the surface, address them and say, yeah, that happened. And here's how I overcame what happened, what I did about it. Instead of being a victim and, 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 and just remaining a victim, I made sure that I transcended that and, and conquered it. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of people tend to play the victim out because they, I don't want to say enjoy, I'm not quite sure what the word is, but we'll say the word enjoy. They enjoy the, the, the empathy, the sympathy they receive off other people. And so they, they have that victim mentality for a long time, but it's not a positive mentality. It's not a healthy way to, to, to invest in your emotions because that sort of victim mentality will, will just eat away at you and you know, give you physical ailments later in life, not to mention the mental and emotional impact. So to identify those triggers and to no longer have that victim mentality and to climb above it, I think is very important. And writing the book helped me to do that. Mm. And you talk in other interviews and elsewhere too on that very topic, uh, Michael, how um, you met one of your, your schoolboy colleagues much many years later and he uh, described you in your words... Uh, you're a pretty happy, level-headed dude. And you, you put a lot of reflection into that uh, in explaining it. And uh, it, it, uh, you might like to elaborate on your thoughts about that comment you met from a, a, a school friend uh, after many years. It, it was an interesting comment that he made because the, the book came out and it was released. And, of course, the tagline of the book, as you mentioned before, is how a bullied fat kid became a global broadcasting mm. star. And uh, this guy went to high school. Um, we'll call him John. That's not his real name, but we'll call him John. Yes. And John you know, contacted me and said, oh, hey, I see your book's out. Congratulations. But I never remember you being um, the bullied kid. I always remembered you as you know, being a pretty happy-go-lucky kid. And uh, John was part of the popular clique 
at school. And um, I, I don't know what it's like these days. I assume it's still the same in high schools everywhere. But back then, I'm talking 1991, 92, 90, high school was very cliquey. You had your sportos, your jocks, you had your, your, your nerds, you know, you had your music geeks. The, 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 the cliques you see in movies like, you know, teen movies like American Pie were very evident, very prevalent back then in the, in the early 90s. And I, you know, I, was, I, I was never a part of that accepted jock clique, that sporto clique, that popular kid clique that existed back then, but this guy was. And the thing was that I, I never shared with anyone back then how much I had been bullied and how much adversity I was experiencing. Henry, when my mum read the book, when I gave her a copy mm. of the book when it came out a few weeks ago, she read it and she read the first two chapters and turned around to me and said, I'm so sorry. I go, what are you sorry for, mum? She goes, I never realised you went through all this. I just didn't tell anyone. So I understand what John was saying, saying I always remember you as a happy-go-lucky kid who wasn't picked on. Well, it's only because I'd never let you see that. You know, I never let that part of me come through. I put that part of me aside and I fought against it. I didn't play myself into a victim mentality and complain and cry and get upset to anyone who would listen that I was being bullied and teased. I said to myself, no, I'm stronger than this. I can overcome this. And the way that I overcome it was through my, my two invisible parts of myself that gave me a superpower, writing and talking through writing in various newspapers and, and, and reporting and talking on, on, on radio, later on television, of course. And so that was, it was, it was interesting to, to, to hear from him, knowing what clique he was back then, and that he will no doubt read the book now because I know he got a copy of the book and go, wow, I, I never knew that, that Michael went through that. Just like my mum said, you know, she never knew that I went through that. My sisters never knew that I went through that. I just, I didn't tell anyone. I just wanted to prove all the naysayers and all the bullies wrong. And you've and you've certainly certainly done that, Michael. We take a short break. Can you hold the line? Indeed. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossek, and I'm in the middle of a discussion with Michael Schiavello. Uh, his new book, Good Night, Irene: How a Bullied Fat Kid from Melbourne Became a Global Broadcasting Star. Welcome back, Michael. Having a great time, Henry. Thank you. Um, now, Michael, um, we've spoken about a really important part uh, and focus of the book, and that is uh, the, the, the social side of it and how, as a kid, you overcame the challenges of being bullied and, uh, and I guess, to some extent, um, feeling bad about that to where you are now. The second part, and we all love to hear and talk about you know the 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 stars uh, the international people that you've you've you've, you've obviously um, come into contact with through your career um, it would be remiss not to mention something which uh, is a passion for you and I can see it a mile away and that is the K1 championships Grand Prix tell us a bit about your passion for that field of sport well, for those that don't know, the, the, the K1 Grand Prix uh, was an organisation that existed from 1993 to 2011, and it was the biggest fight promotion on the planet. They used to get uh, 80,000 people to an event at the Tokyo Dome. It was a global uh, fighting league with uh, tournaments in, in countries around Europe and Australasia and throughout Asia and the USA. And that's where I really made my name as, as a commentator. I remember back in the late 90s when I started commentating for Fox Sports, when, when pay TV just came to Australia. I think it was 96 that pay TV arrived. And 
I was commentating on there when I was a 21 year old. So I think I was still the still the youngest ever TV commentator in Australian history. And I remember sending tapes to K1, hoping to get a call up to the biggest show in the world. And eventually I got that call up on very short notice in 2001 when a commentator got sick and I was asked to fly to Japan on a day's notice or less and do a show in Fukuoka. And I, I must have really impressed the, the bosses so much that they gave me the contract. Uh, I was 25, 26 years old to become the global voice of, of K1. Um, all of a sudden, it was, it was the big league. It was my Super Bowl. It was my WrestleMania. It was my, my Wimbledon, you know, my World Cup final. And to, to do that for so long, uh, I traveled to Japan more than 50 times. I commentated in 13, 14 different countries, everywhere from Poland and Romania and Holland and France to, you know, um, Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and Korea and all over the place. It was an amazing period, and it gave me the chance to really get my craft of commentary down, develop my style, and give that style to the deliver it to the watching world. Mm. And and I, I noticed that uh, in other interviews, there's almost a sadness in your voice when you talk about the golden years of K1 and how uh, will we ever replicate those? And there's a fascinating story behind yeah, that sort of feeling. You might like to elaborate. There was, there was nothing like it, though, Henry. And I don't think there'll ever be anything like it again. And if, you know, if, you, if your listeners go on YouTube and they type K1 Grand Prix and they'll, they'll find some of the footage, the way that the Japanese, who are the, the, the honchos of K1, presented combat sports was unlike anything else. And you think of other big combat sports organisations like you know, UFC or big-time boxing shows, but they all pale in comparison to what K1 was doing. And... Uh, I guess we all become reminiscent and nostalgic about things that happened in the past, but I still remain friends with so many of the great superstars from those, those K1 days and all of us sort of reminisce on the same thing, how it was the, the greatest parade that is not a parade anymore. And I've moved on to other things, you know, doing one championship now, which is broadcast to over 150 countries and is, is the biggest uh, mixed martial arts organization on the planet, uh, bigger than UFC, but K1's always going to hold a special place in the heart. And also given the fact that the very first K1 I commentated was won by an Australian called Mark Hunt, which I still think is the, the biggest Cinderella story, not in combat sports, but in sports history. I mean, he was a guy who was a, 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 a pub brawler, a street fighter who knocked out a, a guy outside a pub in South Auckland one day. The bouncer saw him and said, hey, do you want to have a kickboxing fight? He decked a guy in, in one round in a kickboxing fight. A year later, he's the K1 champion of the world. I mean, the most amazing Cinderella story ever. And I got to commentate that and so many other great moments. Uh, I, I miss it dearly and I miss the friendships I made there. Um, but I, I'm glad I got to leave my, my legacy through that, that great promotion. Mm, and, and, and it was the stories behind those characters. Uh, Ray Sefo was a bit different though wasn't he he wasn't just a supreme athlete he was he was um sort of a a larger than life character in some ways wasn't he well ray ray was and he's incredible one of my one of my great friends and a man that really helped my broadcasting career it was ray who actually got me hooked in with k1 who made the push for k1 to sign me as their english language global commentator Ray was, for those that don't know, a New Zealander, very famous New Zealand kickboxer who was a six-time world champion, 
um, was a massive star in the K1. When I talk massive star, we would go out to dinner with Ray. I remember one time with Ray in Sapporo, up north in Japan. We were out for dinner one night, Ray, myself, uh, Ray's entourage. It really was like living in a TV series entourage. Ray was the Vinnie Chase, and we were his entourage. We were out to dinner one night. We were walking back to the hotel, and suddenly a couple of fans recognized him. There were three people following us. Three turned into 10, turn turned into 20. Before we knew it, 20 turned into 50. And we were running down the street in the middle of Sapporo with maybe 60, 70 fans chasing after Ray, screaming for his autograph. We had to run into a karaoke building. We, we, we hustled inside the <laughs> elevator. Security had to push people back from trying to reach through the closing elevator doors just to touch Ray. I'm talking 60, 70 people. And we went upstairs to a private karaoke room where we remained for three hours until security told us that everyone had left and the coast was clear. Ray was a, a, a massive, massive superstar in Japan, still is. And he'd also worked as a male model earlier in his career. Uh, another story few people know about. So obviously he, he, he was um, he stole the imagination of the men with the way he fought, but also every woman, uh, especially every young woman, wanted to be around Ray Sefo because <laughs> he looked the part as well. Uh, hanging out with Ray for all those years, uh, those sort of stories, I mean, I've got dozens of them of just being at restaurants, being at karaoke bars, being out and about in Rapongi in, in Tokyo, and just fans, you know, women crying, men crying, just uh, people hanging in the lobby of the hotel until 4, 5, 6 a.m. in the morning just for the chance to see him, to shake his hand, to get an autograph from him. Uh, that was what the K1 life was like. There's nothing I can possibly compare it to. No, and time as always is getting away from us. But uh, when you talked, uh, when you talked about uh, passion and hanging the distance, and Ray was important in getting you uh, that gig uh, uh, broadcasting with K One. Um, where do you sit now with your passion and your determination, re Australia, Melbourne? You're one of us, and uh, doors haven't always been made open to you there. And when they have, they've closed it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, how does that impact on you? Uh, unfortunately, Henry, and I, I addressed it in the book, it, it, it's still the case. I, I came back to Australia in 2017. I was living over in Las Vegas uh, for six and a half years, working for Access TV, uh, hosting my own primetime interview show, commentating around the USA, um, you know, doing fantastic ratings, and came back to Australia to live and doors still would not open up. Um, you know, here I am, a, a 2019 Asian Television Award winner, which is the Asian Emmy Award. Uh, here I am, probably the most watched Australian commentator on the planet. As I said, Nielsen rated 80, 80 million plus people per show in 150 countries. Um, you know, one championship who I commentate for is the fourth most watched media sports property on the planet behind WWE, NFL, and NBA. Um, and still, I, I, doors don't open up in Australia. It's, I don't know what to put it down to over all these years. I don't know if it's you know, still the... I address it in the book, and it, you know, there was always the... I was always told, you're not blonde hair, blue-eyed. You're not the standard television look or voice that Australia is used to. You don't have the Anglo-Saxon name. And I wonder if that still is the case at all. Um, you know, even recently, there's a couple of doors I knocked on in radio 
um, and just couldn't get responses back. And I'm thinking, well, that, 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 it, that astounds me. Every opportunity I've had has come from overseas, be it K1, be it Access TV in America, be it now with one championship where I'm traveling every two weeks back and forth around Asia, uh, you know, kicking butt, but not getting any, you know, any um, opportunities in Australia, no matter how many doors I try to pound down. Mind you, I'm not pounding them as hard as I was when I was young because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm set with my career at the moment and, and my drive and my passion is making my, my commentary for K1 the best it can possibly be. But, uh, you know, trying to get a foot in any, any doors in Australia is just a, a very, very hard ask and it's difficult and it's, it's sad in a way, you know, it's... that those opportunities that, that presented themselves internationally never did in Australia for me. Well, well, I'm well, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more uh, than on that, um, Michael. And perhaps this book will uh, this book will perhaps redress that that uh, unfortunate uh, situation. Time's got away from us. I, I sometimes ask, depends on what mood I'm in and how it goes. I ask the uh, authors to do an elevator clip for their book. Um, Good night, Irene. How a bullied fat kid from Melbourne became a global broadcasting star. Um, why should people buy the book? There's two, there's two things I think that people are really going to get out of the book. And uh, one is, if you like celebrities and you want to hear the inside stories about meeting and interviewing people like Steven Seagal and Jackie Chan and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Joe Rogan and you know Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Steven Seagal, all these people, buy the book. They're all in there. And I go way behind the scenes on all of them. But more important than that, is that the social message of this book about overcoming the odds, overcoming adversity, and you know, overcoming the naysayers and achieving what you want to achieve in life through confidence and desire and determination. That's what I really hope people take away from the book. I hope that parents can read the book and give it to their kids. I hope the kids can read the book and learn something from it and see the path that I, I, I went down and, and try and follow their own path as well. And I hope that it inspires people. And Henry, before we go, I've got to say to you, thank you so much for having me on. It's absolutely wonderful to talk to you, even more so that I'm locked down in quarantine in Singapore yes. right now in a room I can't leave for two weeks. So hearing your voice and talking to you is, is a godsend and it's a pleasure to talk like a, a legend of the airwaves like yourself. And thank you so much for, for having me on. Oh, it's uh, the pleasure's mine. Thank you for those kind words uh, very much, Michael. And uh, I look forward to um, when you do come down here, you actually you actually live not far from uh, where I work in Berwick and uh, we, we will most certainly catch up and uh, swap a few more stories. Uh, on that note, congratulations on a great book. It's an educational book as much as it is a book uh, for the voyeurs who like to delve into the into the lives of, of the famous and the influential. You've got the balance there just right, Michael. Thank you, Henry. I appreciate it. I look forward to catching up with you when I'm back in Melbourne. Thank that, you so much. Absolutely. Listeners, that was Michael Schiavella, who's uh, Goodnight Irene, how a bullied fat kid from Melbourne became a global broadcasting star. There's something in there for everybody, published by Bad Apple Press. We'll take a short break. Don't go away. 